The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you're a visitor or just here for the first time, just to bring you up to speed and give you context, we're going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, We start in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just reading through it, studying together the way the Apostle Paul wrote it and gave it to his church that he pastored, that he founded and pastored, and was the pastor of the church for a year and a half, and then he left and planning other churches, and a couple of years later, he actually sent a few letters of correspondence, made some visits to the church to help them along. Young, immature, struggling church, had a lot of giftedness and exciting things, because a whole bunch of city, a whole bunch of folks in the city of Corinth, which was a pagan city, heard the gospel and got saved, and then as a church, uh, they were growing, and God was adding to their numbers, and with uh, that growth came uh, some challenges, and actually, so we've got 16 chapters of Pastor Paul talking to his congregation in Corinth, for the most part trying to help them out with a lot of struggles, wrong thinking, wrong behavior, um, a lot of self-centered thinking, a lot of really spiritual immaturity, and that's why he called them carnal, fleshly. And so that's uh, kind of the theme of this whole book, just trying to straighten out all of their problems. And he's dealing with a particular localized situation, but because he's dealing with timeless biblical universal truths, the truths that Paul communicates to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago carries over, transcends, and applies to us. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. It's the living Word of God. So what Paul said 2,000 years ago, we'll listen in because that can apply to us today. We're no different than the Corinthians, and God doesn't change either with time. So we are looking at 1 Corinthians 13. It's in the middle of a section on spiritual gifts, chapter 12, 13, and 14. It all goes together. Uh, One main argument that Paul has, the Corinthians were abusing their spiritual gifts. They were abusing them primarily in that they were proud of their gifts, arrogant about which ones they had, especially the showy ones, and then kind of using them to draw attention to themselves. And even some of them were using their gifts to edify and serve themselves when God gave spiritual gifts to edify other people. So Paul pauses in the middle of the section in chapter 13 and says, whoa, they said a lot in chapter 12, and now I just want to remind you of the greatest priority of being a Christian, and that is love. And you know what, Corinthians, for the most part, many of you, you, you aren't being loving. It's really basic. A lot of your problems would be resolved if you'd just be loving, if you'd just be like Christ. That's what he was all about. He was incarnate love. That's what, you know, follow my example. I try to be like Christ as a faithful apostle. Paul was. Uh, so he lived uh, a Christ-like life in love as a servant. And so he calls their attention to live in the power of Christ with the model and pattern of love. And he stops and he pauses in a way like no other else in the Bible, in the New Testament. He defines very specifically what he means by you need to be loving. And he gives 15 examples, 15 definitions or synonyms of love and action that truly reflects reflects Christ-like love and specifically the terms that he uses, the 15 components or elements of love are actually the opposite of what the Corinthians were doing. So it's kind of like a mirror that he's holding up. See, this is true love. This is not what you are doing. Uh, So it's very pointed in the words that he chooses. This isn't just haphazard and flippant as he throws out a whole bunch of words describing love. Every one of these you can find of being violated in the book of Corinthians, most of which we've already Covered. So as I go through the rest of the definitions on love, we looked at four or five last week. We'll look at as many of the definitions of working love this week. And with each one, we'll stop and pause. 
Here's what Paul says love is. Here's where the Corinthians violated it somewhere in this epistle. And here's where Christ manifests it because He is the perfect model of supernatural, divine, godly love. Uh, before we jump into the text of 1 Corinthians 13, we need a really basic reminder. It's so basic and fundamental, I might forget it. But uh, go to Matthew 22. Very familiar passage. Maybe you have it memorized as one of your memorization verses or an Awana verse you had, or maybe you just because it's so such a priority. Hit it in your heart. Matthew 22, at the end of his ministry, headed to the cross, but Jesus does a lot of public teaching and actually entertains a lot of criticism from the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in that context as they're trying to trip him up. Matthew 22, verse 34, but when the Pharisees, they, they hated Jesus. They were the religious leaders and teachers. Uh, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, uh, the, the Pharisees gathered uh, themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. Verse 36, Teacher, Rabbi, which is the great commandment in the Torah or the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On just those two. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the essence of biblical Christianity. Jesus says that on these two basic commandments depend the entire law or the old prophet. That means the entire Old Testament is fulfilled in those two commandments. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said explicitly in Romans and other places that love fulfills the law. It does. If you truly love your spouse, you won't commit adultery. You, if you love the other person, you won't take what belongs to them. You won't steal. I mean, you can do that with all the Ten Commandments. If you love God, you're not, you're not going to take His name in vain and you're not going to uh, abuse His authority and you're not going to worship images and make Him jealous. So that's how love fulfills the law. So that is the greatest priority. We need that reminder. It's the plumb line that we all need to be refreshed and reminded of to monitor and manage and uh, gauge our Christian life from day to day because we're prone to do the opposite. We're prone to be self-serving and not loving others. So those are the two greatest commandments. As Christians, love God, love your neighbor. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? But it's incredibly hard to do, isn't it? Especially in our own flesh. We need God's help to do that. So really that is what Paul is saying. Here's, as simple as I can say it, here's the Christian life and here's what's your wrong and your deficiency. You're not loving God and you're not loving your neighbor. So love your neighbor, Corinthian, and here's how to do it. Here's what I mean by being loving. And I said last week when he defined love, he didn't just define it positively. Here is love. Love is patient, being patient with people, having a long fuse towards people, especially difficult people. Love is also being kind, a deliberate acts of thoughtful service that bless the other people, even people you don't like or don't deserve it. That is, that is what love is. Those are two positive traits. And then he goes on to give eight negative 
things that love is not by way of contrast to help us with the definition and also to rebuke the Corinthians. Love is not this. Love is an arrogant, but you're being arrogant. So let's go ahead and look at his extended definition and try to master at least the definitions and then ask God's help to apply these to our own life. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. We'll go to uh, verse 7. Paul says, love is patient. Or love is being patient, or one translation says, love is practicing patience. That's good because these are all verb forms. They're all present tense. They're all active voice. Uh, you need to be doing it. I need to be doing it in a continual, ongoing manner. If you're a Christian, it's a habit of life where it should be. Love is continually practicing, practicing patience and having a long fuse towards other people. Love is being kind. Uh, it is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Amazing. Just incredibly profound, incredibly challenging studying it and then trying to live by this and apply it to our life. I said last week, it is possible for you as a Christian to actually live these out in obedience to God because He's equipped us to do it. He's given us the Spirit of God to live in us that gives us the ability to actually do this. It's not impossible. It's actually what we're expected to do by God. As a matter of fact, when you became a Christian, according to Romans, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. The love of God has been poured out in your soul. Isn't that amazing? If you're a Christian. Well, I can't muster up this kind of a love. Yeah, yeah, you can if you're a Christian. The love of God, past tense, has been shed abroad, poured out in your soul. It is there. It is accessible. Now, in terms of obedience, setting your mind to it, being deliberate, asking God's help through the Holy Spirit, you can do this. And that is the expectation. And when we don't do it, it is wrong. It is sinful. We're accountable for it, regardless of your excuses or the situation. Last week, we looked at uh, the first few. We looked at love is patient. Uh, and that's just long-tempered, long-fuse. Biblical Christ-like love has a long fuse towards other people, uh, particularly people who are hard to deal with, and it usually starts in the home, the people that we become familiar with. So question before we start, how did you do last week with your patience, your macrothumia, your long-fuse? Did you have a noticeably longer fuse than normal as you thought about this, trying to be godly and Christ-like in your love? Do not answer out loud. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but just a practical challenge for us. Were you deliberately thinking, I need to be long-fused because that's what God requires of me as a loving Christian? Or, instead of having a long fuse, did you blow up or blow your cork or fly off the handle or shoot a gasket, on and on, and those kind of things? Well, sometimes we create a habit by bad behavior. We need to recreate a, a good habit, replace bad habits with good habits. So... Just keep meditating on that and working on that and starting where it's most difficult. Maybe it's in the workplace with a colleague that makes you irritated. Maybe it is at home with your family members or driving in the car. Long fuse. Be like Jesus. Then the other one. How would you do about being kind, loving uh, with kindness? Love is kind. It's being kind. Uh, did you do any random acts of kindness deliberately serving someone last week in a unique and special way, just trying to be kind to somebody? Little deed, big deed, something that blessed their soul. That's what it means to be a Christian and be loving. How did you do? Love is patient. Love is being kind. Love is not jealous. Talk about 
boiling up inside with the wrong thoughts towards other people out of covetousness and a lack of love. Uh, we looked at that one. Love does not brag. That's verbal, speaking about yourself, wanting to build yourself up. Mainly, drawing attention to yourself verbally in conversation with people. That's not loving, that's self-centered. That was the Corinthians' problem. They had a problem with being self-centered. Actually, we all do. So that's a good challenge. So then we were getting the next one. Uh, love is not arrogant. So let's go ahead and look at that one. Because this goes hand-in-hand hand with uh, bragging and arrogant. Love does not brag. So that's the verbal outward expression coupled with right next to it. It is not arrogant. Arrogant is the attitude on the inside that will manifest itself through the words of bragging. So looking at this next attribute, First uh, Corinthians 13.4, love is not arrogant. Literally, love is not puffed up. That's where we get that uh, phrase, he's got a big head. That's somebody who thinks uh, a lot about themselves so much that so they're filled with hot air. They've got a big head. It's all about them. Puffed up. That's what this word is, not being arrogant. And it's more of an attitude, on the, a prideful attitude that could issue out in bragging and, and other kinds of things like that. Uh, pompous. Love is not pompous. Uh, love is not full of pride. That is really the diagnosis here. It's pride in the heart. Pride is the opposite of humility. Uh, Jesus was the perfect example of humility. He even said it legitimately so in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said that I am humble in heart. And then Paul talks about in Philippians 2 how Jesus humbled himself even though he was God and deserved worship. He became a servant and died for sinners. You talk about the ultimate act of humility. Jesus is the model in the incarnation. Jesus is humble. Here's the surprise pop quiz of the day that might throw you for a loop. Do not answer out loud with respect to humility and humble. And here's the question. Uh, it's a yes or no question. Is God humble? Is God humble? Pause. Think. Yes or no. Here's the answer. Uh, God is not humble. That may have shocked some of you. Maybe many of you said, yeah, God's humble. Well, He's not. Jesus is humble in the incarnation. Jesus became humble. There are things that Jesus took on that He wasn't inherently as eternal God in the past. For example, when He became a man, He became weak, weary. He took on those things, and humility was one of those attributes uh, that He took upon Himself as a slave, but you can't find anywhere in Scripture where it defines God's attributes that He's humble. Some of you maybe have never thought of that before, but anyway, think about it and if you want to do more study on it. Um, Jesus was humble in His incarnation. And God is not humble because God doesn't have to be humble. He is perfect. He's all-powerful. He's all-glorious. He is sovereign. He is the King. He deserves all worship, reverence from all of creation by virtue of His very character. But we as the creature, we who are forevermore and eternally separated from God in terms of being the creation, we will, there will always be a distinction between us and God. He will always be up here. We will always be down here. Even when we're glorified, perfect, holy, and our resurrected bodies eternally with Him, there's still going to be this relationship we have to Him as the Creator and us as the creation. Hence, we will continually be humble before the awesome, holy Creator. Now, I just want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and we're, because in a section there, Paul's rebuking the Corinthians. And remember, he's their pastor. 
But he's being honest. And he is moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So these words that he's speaking are flawless without error. They are appropriate. They need to be said. They are prophetic. But they're words of accountability and truth. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 4 and 5, verse 6, he's beginning to address one of the problems they had. And he, he cuts to the chase of the attitude. He's pulling away the veneer of getting a proper diagnosis. Really what the issue is, it's your heart. It is prideful. And what he says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, towards the end of the verse, is he said, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a I'm concerned that some of you might become arrogant. It's the same word here. Arrogant, puffed up. Not that you might become arrogant. He goes on and gets more specific. And then in verse 18, he says, Now some of you have become arrogant. You are puffed up, indeed, some of you. Not all of them, but some of them. Then he goes on in verse 2 of chapter 5. And you have become arrogant. He says it three times. Then he brings it up again in chapter 8, reminding him, you know what? Uh, one of the reasons you're so arrogant and puffed up is because you think you have all this secret spiritual knowledge. But uh, let me remind you that knowledge puffs up, love edifies. There again, he's contrasting knowledge and love. So going back uh, to 1 Corinthians 13, this specific reminder telling, you know what, many of you are arrogant, you're puffed up, and that is the opposite of love. Stop doing that. Be like Jesus in his incarnation, totally humble, total servant, totally Selfless. That needs to be our challenge as well. So let's go on to the next one. Love is not being arrogant. And then we begin verse 5. Uh, depending upon your English translation, mine in the New American Standard says, uh, love does not act unbecomingly. Some translations say, love does not act shamefully or unseemly. Uh, this means uh, discourteous. A lot of synonyms for it. Uh, love is not rude. Love is not crude. Love is not impolite. Love is not improper. Love has, the positive would be love has good manners. Love has proper decorum. Love always does the appropriate thing. And Paul is specifically talking about being this way in the public context of the worship service because we've already looked at examples where the Corinthians were involved in things that were not becoming. They were very unbecoming. They did it publicly at church. And it was actually shameful and embarrassing. It's almost hard to fathom some of the things that they were doing publicly. We already talked about 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, where they were coming to the communion service. And some people were having so much of the... It wasn't grape juice like we have. They had real wine for communion. And some of them were chugging the sacramental wine to the point they were getting drunk at church. I mean, I can't even fathom that. But it was going on. That... uh is the specifically the opposite of this. Does, love does not act unbecomingly. If, if you're going to be truly loving, you're not going to act unbecomingly. You're not going to get drunk and you're not going to do it, especially at church, among the saints. An embarrassed Christ. So that's really what he's referring to. He also uses this word in 1 Corinthians 7, warning them to not be unbecoming and how you treat a sister in the Lord that you're contemplating either dating or engaging or marrying. So there's a moral overtone or implication to it as well but it is a generic word that covers a lot and i just think about jesus was jesus ever unbecoming inappropriate shameful and seemly discourteous uh, embarrassing rude crude impolite uh, lacking good manners absolutely not he was perfect in all of these areas he is the model everything he did was appropriate he was sensitive to everything that needed to be uh, taken into account when he was conducting himself especially publicly his decorum flawless He's doing this out of love, out of reverence for God, out of love for people. I even just think about 
one example where at the end of his life, doing things appropriately, because he was, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He, really, he is. God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit created all things. So at the end of his life, near the end of his ministry, when he needed that donkey to ride on, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, to ride into Jerusalem on the, the donkey, uh, he, he made that donkey, by the way. He, he, had, he was the sovereign king. I mean, theoretically, Jesus could have uh, pulled rank and said, you know what, I want that donkey. Fork it over. Give it to me. Um, at the chagrin of the owner and the loss of it and whatever, but he didn't do that. He communicated with the owner ahead of time, got their consent, sent his messengers. Uh, they picked it up, and they had an arrangement. And I just thought how nobody was flustered. Everybody knew what was going on. Great, perfect communication. Um, the donkey was returned. I mean, just everything about the way Jesus conducted himself, the, even the details, was with just wonderful, blessed politeness, decorum, and the way he interacted with it. It was very loving for him to be so considerate, even on a small thing like that, where he had his rights. And so that's just one example of um, where Jesus always acted becomingly and never improperly. You've got your Bible there. You can look at 1 Corinthians, flip over a chapter to chapter 14. Paul is going to rebuke the Corinthians in chapter 14 on this. They, they just had a, a habit of being... Uh, unbecoming, shameful, embarrassing. That's kind of what he argues. He said, you know, I, I am afraid that you're going to have unbelievers come visit your church. I'm afraid you're going to have seekers come to your church, these unbelievers, because if they do, they're going to be aghast. They're going to freak out. They're going to think you guys are weirdos. It is embarrassing what is going on. Man, I hope unbelievers don't come in light of the way you're conducting your public services. So he's going to argue that kind of a theme. And then he concludes chapter 14 by just saying this very pointedly. Uh, let all things, verse 40, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's a summary statement. Because you aren't. You're not doing things properly. You're not doing things orderly. Total chaos. It's embarrassing. Don't do that. So as a church, especially when we come together... Uh, we need to do things in a becoming way, in a, not a shameful way, because love is not unbecoming, especially towards other people. And if you're thinking about other people and you're sensitive to them and loving towards them and loving towards God, you're not going to act in an improper, irreverent, unbecoming way. It's kind of sad that um, acting unbecoming in church is kind of rampant in the American evangelical church today, if you look around, really. You'd be shocked if some churches that you go to have what they are doing that I would say is unbecoming. It is embarrassing. It's shocking. Uh, one one of the most well-known popular bi- pastors today, a best-selling book I was reading, it, and at the introduction, he boasts and says, in this book, I am shocking, I am edgy, and I try to raise eyebrows. Like, why why would you do that? And then he he's true to his promise. Did you read the rest of the book? It's like, wow, why, whoa, why would you do that? Christians shouldn't be doing this, and God forbid we shouldn't be doing this in the public assembly as we're worshiping God. We're supposed to gather together to first and foremost worship a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Moses, take your sandals off. You stand on holy ground in the presence of God. Reverence. So that's what should drive our attitude. If you have a reverent attitude towards Almighty Holy God, especially when you're in the midst of His people worshiping together, this will definitely inform whether you are becoming or unbecoming, embarrassing or not embarrassing or appropriate. And first and foremost, it's what is your attitude towards God? Do you love God? By the way, as I was reading through these, what dawned on me on uh, these attributes of love, love is patient, love is kind, thinking 
So to fulfill this in lo- towards other people, we could do these things. To be loving, to fulfill that second command. Remember, Jesus said uh, the two great commands are love God, love other people. And every one of these in 1 Corinthians 13 applies to how we act towards other people. So we can fulfill that. And then I began to think about, well, how do we take these and apply these to God? That's kind of a, a different take. Think about it. Love is patient. Okay, I need to be patient with God. I need to have a long fuse with the perfect almighty creator of the universe. No, I don't. Because he doesn't sin. He knows what he's doing. His timing is perfect. Uh, I don't need to be patient with God in that negative kind of a way, implying that he is at fault. So that's kind of a different thing. So how can I fulfill these or the command of love towards God who is perfect? I don't have to have a long fuse with God because he's not the problem. I am. But it's other people. They have the problem, right, that you're trying to be patient with. I need a long fuse because they're the problem. They're the sinner. They're weak. They got it all wrong. But with God, how do I love God? I don't have to be be kind to God. Here, God, here. I'm going to give you this because you need that God needs nothing. God is all sufficient. Well, how do I do that with God? Kind, um, jealous. I don't need to be jealous towards God. Love. Anyway, so that's a unique challenge. And I would say, well, then how do we love God? How does a Christian truly love God? How does a Christian fulfill that first command? Because it's the greatest commandment. should be a priority. should be a no-brainer. We should have it down. First and foremost, how do we love God? I would say this. Obedience. That's probably one of the key and main ways that we can show love for God. Jesus said that. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Well, what are your commands, Jesus? Well, I have my apostles write them down. They're right here. How do I love God? Well, how do I love the person that's unloving? Well, I have a long fuse with him. Well, how do I love God? Well, I love that person through a long fuse because they're hard to love. And that's actually an act of love towards God. It's worshiping him. It is loving him. So one of the greatest ways that we can love God is by doing these things, by loving other people exactly how he says here. And also trusting God is a great way to show love to God. So obedience with the right attitude and trust. Okay, going back to uh, our definitions on love. So we look at love is not unbecoming. So we need to do things in a becoming and proper way. Um, The next one in verse 5 is love does not seek its own. This is pretty self-explanatory. In other words, love is not selfish. Love is not self-centered. Love is not preoccupied with Self. Okay, here's another pop quiz question. They don't answer out loud because I don't want to embarrass anybody. From the time you got up this morning until now, did you at all think about yourself? Maybe I should answer that question for you and for me. Yes, we all thought about ourselves. We thought about our needs and what we want to do and what's going to affect us and what's a threat to us and me, 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 me. That is so natural, isn't it? And so hence this supernatural a command to not seek your own all the time because that just comes naturally. We need God's help to override this. This goes against our nature. The very fiber of who we are as people. Love does not seek its own. Love is selfless. Love seeks the good of other people. Jesus, I mean, there are so many examples. That was what Jesus' life was all about. Denying self, taking up his cross, serving other people, giving his life for other people being a servant to other people. As a matter of fact, that was a summary statement in Mark 10:45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the very incarnation of this command. Love does not seek his own. And when Jesus came as Savior, he didn't come to seek his own good, his own glory, lift himself up. He did it all for us. There was no greater example of love than the love the Lord Jesus had on our behalf as the serving, selfless, sacrificial Savior on behalf of sinners. That is true love. And the Apostle Paul modeled this himself in Christ-like fashion when he was with the Corinthians. He says it in 1 Corinthians. He says it in uh, 2 Corinthians where when he came among the Corinthians, he was going to be their servant. He wasn't going to peddle the Word of God for money. Hey, oh, we heard you're an apostle. That uh, apparently Jesus appeared to you. Hey, can you come and be the keynote speaker at our event? Yes, but I speak at $5,000 a pop or 700,000 denarii a pop. Sure, I'll be there. It fits into my schedule. No, and by the way, I like an entourage of 14 camels as well. No, no, that wasn't Paul. He said explicitly, I came not peddling the Word of God. He gave the Word of God for free. He uh, worked on the side, had another job, didn't take a paycheck. Uh, because he wanted to be an example to them to show that he was being a servant. It was all about God, His truth, and also not seeking His own. So Paul is a wonderful model of selfless service for us as Christians. So we need to do the same. And this is really a hard one. One commentator says, this is it. This is, this is what it's all about. Uh, this was the key problem that the Corinthians had. They were just selfish and self-seeking to the core they were with their spiritual gifts oh i want this spiritual gift oh i want the limelight i want to do that i want to prophesy i want to speak in tongues i want to be on the stage i want people to see me i want to be uh complimented and that's how they were driven and paul's going to get more and more into that saying that that is so wrong the very antithesis of why god gave us gifts so with god's help and the holy spirit in obedience to jesus and the father let's seek to love our neighbor and god by trying to resist that natural inclination to serve self and seek our own will and desire. By the way, every time you have a fight or an argument at home with a family member, it's usually because you want your own agenda. You're seeking your own. That's, that's what James tells us. Why do you fight and war and kill each other? Because you lust. What does that mean? I want, I want my way. I want it my way. I want my agenda. That's what he's saying. So this is consistent with what Paul is saying. That's unloving. Uh, let's go on to the next one. Love uh, does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. One uh, Greek New Testament scholar translated it and says, love does not get irritated. Love is not provoked. Uh, this is the complement to patience. Uh, patience is that inner attitude and demeanor of being long-tempered. The complement here is the outward uh Lack of the manifestation of the negative. Um, not getting irritated. Love doesn't get provoked with people. Love doesn't get irritated. Uh, love doesn't pop its cork and then get angry through yelling and stomping your feet and throwing things or saying mean and unkind things or raising your voice. Very specific Greek word, uh, paroxuno. We even get an English word from that that is related to having a convulsion. Having a convulsion. You know what that looks like? That's very graphic imagery. It's instantaneous. It is spontaneous. It is scary. It is frightening. Your whole body is shaking. Sometimes you're foaming at the mouth. That's where this word is related to. And so it's where you just finally, you know what? I've had it. My fuse has run out. And then you get, you choose to get irritated, provoked, and pop your cork and 
and you manifest it either with your actions, your facial expressions, your hands and your demeanor, or noises you make, or verbally, usually is the most common way to voice it. Uh, love does not get provoked. Love does not get illegitimately angry. Love does not get illegitimately irritated with other people, even if they are hard to deal with, even if they are irritating. Moms, this the biggest challenge for you. Parents is probably maybe with your children at different times in the home. When they do the same thing wrong over and over and over and over and over again, repeating, okay, that's it, I've had it. I'm going to get irritated. No, you can't. You've got to deal with it. You can hold them accountable, but you don't get irritated and pop a cork and fly off the handle and get angry in an illegitimate, ungodly, fleshly way. That is the challenge. That's what God calls us to do. He equips us to be able to pull this off because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and accountability from knowing Christ. Sudden outburst of emotion. Uh, one commentator says this, Love guards against being irritated, upset, or angered by things said or done against us. There it is. Love guards against being irritated, upset, or angered. Notice this commentator says that uh, being irritated, angered, they're synonymous. Because some people will say, I didn't get angry, I was just irritated. Oh, you're playing semantics doesn't matter what you say. I just saw that thing you threw in the air. I didn't get angry. I was just frustrated. Oh, mm, oh. We do that. We justify. We make excuses. Uh, when you get provoked or have an outward expression of emotion, don't deny it when it's being illegitimately irritated. Don't deny it when confronted. By saying, oh, I didn't get angry. I was frustrated. Or, you made me do it. Wow. Or, I was enduring them long enough. I've had it. So don't justify it. Explain it away. Rationalize it. Blame somebody else. But rather own it. Admit it. Confess it. James tells us the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. We are all uh, susceptible to this, aren't we? To different degrees. Um... And like I said, this habit usually manifests itself first at home or in familiar places, and that is our challenge. Look at, I want you to look at this because you think of the Apostle Paul. Paul, The Apostle Paul was not made of marble. He was not sinless. Uh, He wasn't perfect. Yes, he was an apostle. He was a vessel that God used to communicate supernatural truth. He was a born-again Christian. Um, But he had his weaknesses. He even says in his biography in, in Romans 7 that he was a sinner. I am a sinner. Uh, I have sin living in me. No good thing lives in me, as a matter of fact. That's his biography. This is Paul is so humble. No good thing lives in me. As a matter of fact, evil lives in me. I, you know what? The more I look at myself, the sicker I get. The more I do introspection. He was being honest because sin lives in him. So he was uh, a sinner just like all of us. He walked with feet of clay like all of us. He was finite and fallen like all of us. And even at the peak of his apostolic ministry where he did such amazing things and even at times had the ability to do miracles. He was so humble. Uh, I think about the end of his 20-plus year ministry. Um, the last two epistles he wrote were First and Second Timothy. So he's, you know, he could be in his 60s by then. For all we know. But he's an old, seasoned, godly man that others should emulate at the time. So at the end of his life, after he's known Jesus and grown and matured and had all these experiences and God sanctified him, he became sensitive to his own sin and holiness and his desire was heaven. At the end of his life, at the peak of his maturity, 
when you think he's the godliest he's ever been, he says in his biography in 1 Timothy 1.15 that I am the worst of all sinners. Present tense. Not I used to be the worst of all sinners. I used to be a Christian killer and when I became a Christian early on, I was kind of fanatical and out of control and lacked boundaries and had rough edges. He didn't say that. It's, I am present tense right now after all the maturity that I have gone through as an apostle and a Christian. I am the worst of all sinners. That's what Paul thought of himself. And you know what? Every one of us as Christians, we should think that about ourselves. Really, that is the mark of spiritual maturity. It's the greatest mark of spiritual maturity. It's an honest spiritual evaluation of your own helpless state before a holy God. Sin lives in me. Nothing good lives in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. And the longer I live on this earth, the more disgusted I am with my own sin. Lord Jesus, come Maranatha. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, thank you for your ongoing death and resurrection on my behalf as a sinner. That's the attitude we all need to have and emulate just like Paul did as he got older. But he struggled is the point. He was a sinner. Look at... uh, Actually, Acts chapter 23. So Paul gets arrested on false charges, and he's getting the run around. He's going to all these mock false trials. And they want to actually whip him and scourge him, and they're about to do that. And then it, uh, Paul says, Whoa, did you know I'm a Roman citizen? And the Roman's like, Whoa, you're a Roman Really? And then uh, they realize he's a Roman citizen, so they don't whip him without a trial, and they let him loose and take the chains off. And then They bring him to uh, a Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. So it could be up to 70 Jewish guys who hated Jesus. And they're having this council and this trial. That's Acts 23. And they're before the Sanhedrin. And among the Sanhedrin, you had your officers and the chairman of the board. And usually one of those guys was the high priest, which is a position in the Old Testament. The high priest had certain duties by God and was supposed to represent God. So should have embraced the Messiah and the truth of Paul, but they didn't because they were in unbelief. And so here's the Sanhedrin. And Paul is on trial before the court of the Sanhedrin. And he's spontaneously pulled in and he just begins to speak and he doesn't uh, look around and he doesn't really know the context of what's going on and who's who. And it says in Acts 23, verse 1, And Paul, looking intently at the counselor of the Sanhedrin, before this court, he said, Brethren, fellow Jews, is what he meant, because he used to be, he was a Pharisee. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day, said Paul. And the high priest, the ruler of the Sanhedrin court, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside Paul to strike him on the mouth, to punch him in the mouth when he said that, in the courtroom. And so they do. They go over, smack, punch Paul right upside the head. And what is Paul's reaction to this unexpected assault? Verse 3, then Paul said to the high priest, to Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, some of you are laughing. I would too. I was initially like, yeah, get him, Paul. You tell him. Smite me. God, smite you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law of Moses and in violence of the law? Order me to be struck? Because that was a violation of the law. He was on trial. There hasn't been a, a verdict rendered yet. A sentence hasn't been passed. You can't just go up and punch the guy when he's given a testimony. So Paul was right by the letter of the law. When he said, whoa, that's a violation of the law. Paul was not right when he called the high priest or the judge, Judge Judy. You don't shout back to Judge Judy and say, you whitewashed wall. She will not take that. 
So verse four, but the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul, do you realize who you just screamed and yelled at and called a name? That is the high priest. Paul's like, whoa, I didn't know that was the high priest. Verse five, Paul said, I was unaware, brethren, fellow Jews. So he's showing respect that he was the high priest. For it is written, then he quotes scripture, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You shouldn't revile the high priest. So Paul, there's Paul sinned. He blew it. He got irritated. He got provoked. He lost his cool to one of the most highly respected and esteemed positions or offices in all of Israel. Paul knew it. So he sinned. He blew it. He got provoked. He is not perfect. Yet notice the humility in his admission that, oh man, yeah, you're right. He allowed himself to be rebuked by the word of God for his sin and immediately fessed up. That's what you need to do as a Christian because we're going to mess up, aren't we? And he was given God's forgiveness anyway, not these guys because they ended up killing him. So don't get irritated. Ask for God's help. Uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll look at the next one. Uh, love doesn't get provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The end of verse 5. Uh, it uses a lot of English words for just a few Greek words on this. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The word suffered in the New American Standard isn't even in the Greek text. That's why it's in italics. So love does not take into account a wrong. Love does not write down in a ledger evil done against you. Take into account. That is an accounting term. Uh, it does. It refers to a ledger. Where, as the good accountant, you write down the minutia and the details and the data. Seven plus seven, this. This is how much we saved. This is the debt. This is the balance. This is what we owe. This is what they paid. This is the receipt. And very... Uh, regimented, tight, uh, detailed records of bookkeeping is the idea. It's a legal transaction, writing this stuff down so you don't forget it and you got the information right. And the emphasis here is on minutia. Logizomai. Love does not keep logizomai of evils is the word. The implication is evils done against you when people sin against you. When people sin against you, especially Christians, don't write it down. That is literally what this says. Love doesn't keep... And then the metaphorical use is don't remember it. And what that means is forgive. Forget it. Forgive and forget and move on. You have to as a Christian. You know, of all the um, characteristics and definitions of love, this one is unique in a few ways. One of the ways and reasons this one is unique is because it's the, the very heart of the atonement of why Jesus came. Why Jesus, why was Jesus born? Why did he come to earth? Why did he die? He actually came to fulfill this component of love. We don't read anywhere that Jesus died and came in the world uh, to help us be more patient. The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, Jesus came and died so that we'll be kind to people. Mm, no, that's, that's do-goodism. The Bible doesn't say that either. People, Jesus came and died so that uh, we won't be jealous of people. No, uh, that's not the explicit reason why he came. Jesus came and died so that there might be forgiveness of sin. That's exactly what this is. 
Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. That is forgiveness. Love forgives. That's all, that's all it means. Present tense. Get this. Love keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving and keeps forgiving. This is why Jesus came. He died for forgiveness. I remember one time talking to a group of pastors and I said, uh, would you say that Jesus came? Well, we were in a debate with an, another person and I thought, okay, these guys will come to my rescue. Uh, hey guys, would you say that Jesus came to die for forgiveness? And they, they said no. I was like, whoa. Now I'm, and now it's five against one. What in the world are you guys thinking? Uh, well, then why did he come and die? He, he came and died for God's glory. <laughs> that was the answer. How spiritual. How can I argue with that? Okay, you got me there. Uh, but I would say in terms of the practical application, Jesus, I could legitimately say Jesus came and died for the forgiveness of sin. He came and died for forgiveness. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says the gospel is. Jesus died for sin. What do you mean Jesus died for sin? Jesus died that sin might be forgiven. That's why this one is unique in that regard. It's at the very heart of the atonement and the purpose of why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of sin. And in return, when we are saved, we have the ability, the supernatural capacity to forgive others as God has forgiven us. That's what the clear teaching of the Bible. This one is paramount. So love doesn't keep a ledger or a record or a memory of sins committed against you, especially against another believer. Stop doing that. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. And apparently that was at the heart of a lot of their squabbling and accusations unforgiveness. This is, this is a basic virtue of being a Christian. Forgiveness. Like I said, it's a book keeping term um there's a movie uh what was it called rain man don't see it because i saw it before as a christian so that's why it was okay uh rated r and i had a personal interest in the movie by the way because uh, i knew somebody who had that problem it was a a medical a, a born condition of autism it was very accurate and i'll never forget the scene where uh rain man the guy with autism or um dustin hoffman uh, his brother grabbed his neck in a restaurant and kind of like this and squeezed it a little hard and the autistic guy, he got all offended and he, he freaked out and he stopped and he pulled out a journal that he had like on his possession. It was a notebook and he opened it up to page 62 and he said, uh, uh, personal offense 732, grabbed and pulled neck and then he dated it in restaurant publicly and it really hurt. Then he put it back in his pocket. I mean, that is the... Uh, living illustration of what not to do. That is not love. Uh, two pastors in their commentary said the most miserable Christians they knew are Christians who kept journals of written sins and offenses against them. And they told them, trash them. I think it was Warren Wiersbe and John MacArthur in their commentaries. So when we are unforgiving, it actually affects our spiritual life and demeanor and attitude and joy. It robs us of our joy. Uh, but most of all, we're not being like Jesus. We're undermining the very reason that Jesus came into this world. Do not keep an account of wrongs made against you by other people. And here's the big question. Why? Why should we not do that? <laughs> it's very simple. Because God doesn't. Don't keep a record of offenses of another Christian when they sin against you. Reason number one is because God doesn't keep a record of their sins that they committed against you. Because we want, sometimes we want to condemn people who sin against us. They need to be punished. No, they were punished and we were all punished if you're a Christian by G when Jesus was punished on the cross. He was condemned as your substitute. So the punishment has already been paid. Why do they have to do double duty? That's not right. That is not just. That is not 
fair. That's not God's way. And by the way, God isn't holding their sins against them. They've been washed under the blood. Yeah, there's accountability and rebuke and whatever, but you forgive. That's Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, reprove him verbally, not yelling, point out the sin, show where it's wrong in Scripture, tell them what they did. Point, so if your brother sins against you, reprove him and get this. If he repents, forgive him. Wash it away. Never to be remembered. Never to be brought up. Not in a ledger. Ever. Again, this, this is hardest to do in the home. Many times this is the hardest to do in marriage. Uh, God doesn't remember our sins. Why should we remember other people's piddly sins when God forgets all of our horrific sins that put Him on the cross? That makes no sense. Uh, just a couple of verses. Look, look, this is amazing. God's forgiveness of our sins. He's not keeping a ledger. Oh, no, wait, I corrected. God is keeping a ledger. You know what he's keeping a ledger of? Faithful and good deeds that we've done in his service. Really? I believe. So when we get to heaven, at the beam of judgment, we will be rewarded for faithful service done here. We are not going to be condemned for our sins in heaven on the panoramic three-screen, 3D, high-fidelity, in-color screens for all the world and all the angels to see for all history. First of all, that would take more than eternity to get all those sins up there. But God's promise is it's all been washed in the blood. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness, washed in the blood, beautiful. That is the truth of the gospel. That's why it's good news. When you think about some of the sins you've committed in your life, aren't you glad that it's been forgiven and washed by the blood to be brought up no more by Almighty God, the the just and gracious judge? Look at uh, Isaiah. If you can flip fast enough, I want to read two verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 30, well actually Isaiah 38, 17, it just says, I think it's Hezekiah, he says that God, what God did to Hezekiah's sin is he, he threw Hezekiah's sins behind his back. That's a beautiful picture because you know, when you take somebody's sins and throw it behind, you can't see it. Out of sight, out of mind. But the more graphic one that I like, Isaiah 43, go there. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Um, we need to forgive like God forgives. Uh, God's doing a lot of talking in Isaiah 40s. And God Himself says in verse 25 of Isaiah 43, I, even I, it's emphatic, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Now, how in the world can we resurrect some old sin when God has wiped it away? It's like you wrote it on a whiteboard and He wiped it off, never to be seen again, totally forgotten. It's history. It can't be resurrected. It can't be brought up again. This is... True forgiveness, supernatural, divine forgiveness. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. The death of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, where He absorbed all of the wrath of a holy God, that is the basis by which God can forgive and wipe our sins away. He's a just God. He doesn't just ignore it. A penalty was paid for it, and it's wiped away. I've wiped out your transgressions. Amen. What what a comfort that is to your conscience. Another good one. In, uh, look at Psalm 103. Middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Psalm 103 towards the end. Talking God talking about His forgiveness. Uh, the context, verses 8 and following. Uh, no, wait, sorry. Psalm 100, yeah, 8 through 12. Psalm 103. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, says David. Uh, he talks about how awesome God is. Yahweh, he gives, he's talking about God as his friend, his personal covenant God, the God he knows personally. That would apply to us as Christians. We know God through Jesus the Savior. He's our friend. He is our Lord. He, we know him personally. We're in his family. He's our father. 
of verse 6, the Lord, or Yahweh, wonderful deeds that he does, verse 8, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he must judge sin. But here he's emphasizing God's forgiving heart. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. See, he has a long nose is what it literally is. It means a long fuse. He is patient. He's a loving, patient God, abounding in loving kindness. Verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, because if he did, we'd all be dead and there'd be nobody in church today because the wages of sin is death. That's how patient and gracious he is. Uh, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, that is infinite. So great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, it is limitless. So far has He, God, removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah. Amen. I hope you have a good lunch today. The main thing in your mind is, man, God has forgiven. Because I know Jesus, all of my sins have been washed away. And in return, out of love and adoration for Him, I will show that same love love for other people, and I will be forgiving as God is forgiving. One wise poet said in 1711, absolutely profound, to err is human, to sin is human, and to forgive divine. As a matter of fact, that's probably one of the greatest distinctives of biblical Christianity and the true God, that he has the capacity and the ability to forgive legitimately sin. No other religion has a God that can do that. Only the true God can do that. One of the distinct, unique natures about God and what sets him apart from all else is that he's a forgiving God. Uh, let's look at a couple of... Jesus, like I said, you know, Jesus came into this world to die for sin. Jesus came into this world to die for forgiveness. Jesus came into this world to provide forgiveness of sin. And I just a jet tour through Matthew to show that that is true. Matthew chapter, I'm going to go fast. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, at the birth of Jesus, he was to be given a divine name. It is Jesus, Yeshua. It has to do with God's name, and he shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. His name is Savior. His very existence is the incarnation on earth was to provide forgiveness of sin as the blessed Savior for sinful people. Then in uh, Matthew chapter 5 of the Beatitudes, in terms of what he required of his people, those people who would be blessed and know him, their traits and characteristics would be, they would be like this, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, blessed are blessed by God are these kind of people, the people that are merciful. What is a merciful person? That is somebody who withholds wrath towards somebody who deserves wrath for their sin. It has to do with forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful people. If you're a forgiving person, uh, God will bless you. You reflect God's character. You reflect Jesus in a way that no other uh, way or manifestation can. And you're going to receive mercy as a result by being a forgiving, merciful person. This will revolutionize your life. This will revolutionize your relationships. This will revolutionize your marriage, your family life, relationship with your siblings, your relationships in the church. Matthew 5.22, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother, unforgiving. See, that's holding on to bitterness. That's logizomai, writing it down. You're angry because you're unforgiving. And it's your brother. It's a fellow believer. Don't do that. You, you shall be guilty before the court if you do. 
Go reconcile. Go rebuke if you have to, but forgive. Be reconciled. Forgive, forgive, forgive. That is the mandate of Jesus. Uh, verse 44, even if it's unbelievers and their enemies, uh, I say to you, love your enemies nevertheless. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He came for forgiveness, to provide for forgiveness. Uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Get this. When you pray, pray like this. Forgive us our debts, God. Forgive us. Forgive us of our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. Wow. God, help us to be forgiving people. Help us to be forgiving people. Listen to what Jesus said. This is frightening. Verse 14 after the Our Father prayer. For if you forgive men of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, if you are not a forgiving person, Your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That is a mark of a Christian is being forgiven, uh, being a forgiving person. You can't get into heaven if your sins aren't forgiven. And God the Father, or Jesus says, God the Father isn't going to forgive you if you're not forgiving other people. What Jesus is really saying is, if you are not known by being an ongoing forgiving person, you may very well not be a Christian. You don't have the nature of almighty, saving, loving, merciful, compassionate, forgiving God in your heart. You need to be born again. It's a mark of a Christian. Uh, lastly, Matthew 18. You got the discipline process? Well, some people need uh, un unforgiveness. No, they don't. Nobody needs. Uh, nobody who's a believer needs unforgiveness. Nobody. They might need accountability. We all do. They might need a rebuke. We'll already address that in Luke 17. They might need to go through the church discipline process, but that isn't about punishing them. Church discipline process is not about punishing anybody. It's about drawing a true believer to brokenness so that they will repent, be forgiven and restored. That's a good thing. The second purpose of the church discipline process is exposing an unbeliever who's posing as a believer because that's what it does. You get to step four and they don't repent and they remain perpetually in that state. Jesus said you can determine that is not a Christian. So the church discipline process in Matthew 18 is all about forgiveness. And so Jesus tells the church discipline process, okay, Peter, church, guys, we start the church. You need to do the Matthew 18 discipline church process, uh, church discipline. Uh, it has to do with confronting people, holding them accountable, drawing them to forgiveness and repentance, restoring the church, exposing unbelievers, getting them out of the church so they don't harm the church. Uh, but at the core is forgiveness for the true believer. And so Peter and the disciples are listening to this. So Peter comes up to Jesus and said, Lord, hmm, this forgiveness thing, how often... Uh, because I've been told, uh, here's what we think historically, that the Jews in that day were said, if you're a really spiritual person, you're going you're gonna to forgive the same person three times. Woo! Three times. So Peter's thinking, you know what, I'm going to double that and then add one. And I'll be really spiritual. Seven. So Peter goes up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Probably wants a little pat on the back. Oh, good boy, Peter. How forgiving. Not Verse 22, Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times. Wrong answer, Peter, but up to 70 times seven. 500 times a day. Wow. Try that with your kids at home. Try that with your spouse at home. Oh, you can't be mad at me. We're only on 132 and it's 11 o'clock at night. I got one hour. Listen to this. I want you to listen to this parable. Uh, that Jesus tells about forgiveness. Very careful. And we're going to all apply it to ourselves. 
For this reason, here's the parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king. Okay, now the king is God. He is perfect. He's omnipotent. The kingdom may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. He had a bunch of slaves and they are indebted to him. There's a lot of people that owe him. And when he had begun to settle accounts, there was brought to him one who owed him, get this, 10,000 talents, 6,000 days wages, up to a billion dollars in Bay Area numbers. A billion dollars. This guy was in debt. But since he did not have the billion dollars to repay, after all, he was a slave servant, didn't have any money, uh, his Lord commanded him to be sold uh, along with his wife and children and all that he had so that re- until repayment had been made. The slave begins to plead for mercy. Therefore, falling down, prostrated himself on the ground before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord, called the Lord here, or the king, which is God, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion, hurt in his gut, and actually released him, and get this, forgave the debt. Not only am I not going to throw you in prison, not only am I going to require the $1 billion be repaid, not only am I not going to throw your kids and family and you know what, you can go free and I'm just going to forgive the debt. You don't owe me a billion bucks anymore. You talk about forgiveness, forgiving the loan, forgiving the debt. So you would think that this guy, wow, hallelujah, praise God, that king is so great. Um, uh, Amen. And it would have affected him and made a transformation in his very own heart and soul. And that he would have reciprocated and spilled that out in grace towards everybody else that he knew. He didn't do that. Um, verse 28 says, but the, So the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who, owe, who owed him a hundred denarii. This guy owes him a hundred bucks. He just got forgiven one billion dollars. Immediately goes out and finds somebody who owes him a hundred dollars. And seized him. The imagery, he grabs him by the neck. Wow. And began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave, who could probably hardly even talk as the uh, thumbs are going into his throat, manages to get away, falls down on the ground, just like this other guy did, begins to entreat him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you, which is exactly what this guy said to the guy that he owed a billion dollars to. And ironically, verse 30 says, he was unwilling, however, but he went and threw that slave into prison until he should pay back every last cent of that lousy $100. Verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord or the king or to God all that had happened, how unforgiving this guy was. Verse 32, then summoning him, the king or the Lord or God said to the unforgiving slave, you wicked slave. That's what God thinks of unforgiveness. It is wicked to the core. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, not because of your character. It's just because of the mercy of God. Verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I also had mercy on you? And his Lord, the king, God, moved with anger. Unforgiveness makes God 
angry. Unforgiveness God considers wicked. That is the word. He handed this unforgiving slave over to the, get this, to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Uh, Verse 35, so shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother or his sister from the heart. God knows the heart. Only God knows the heart. Now, as you're thinking about that parable, thinking, uh, did this come across your mind at all? Wow, what a mean, selfish, unforgiving bully of a jerk. I can't believe he did that. Well, naturally, we would all see that and think that way. Here's the challenge. Is there anybody right now as a Christian that I have unforgiveness towards? More specifically, is there anybody in my life who is a fellow Christian that I have unforgiveness towards? Wow. That is frightening. That's me. Then you or me, we're in the parable. I'm the jerk in the parable. Uh, If I don't change my ways or deal with it, I am wicked. What I'm doing makes God angry. If it has to do with the condition of my heart and I'm not truly born again, but I am self-deceived, then my fate is eternal damnation. If it's this that I'm a blinded, hardened, calloused Christian and truly born again, then God, according to Hebrews 12, will chasten me as much as He needs to to soften me and woo me to have a forgiving heart the way He wants me to because that will please God. That's what we read in the Beatitude in 5-7 where God is He blesses the merciful. That means He's pleased with them. He's gracious to them. They will be abounding with joy and the fruits of the Spirit and uh, multitudinous, unspeakable blessings from God in your life. If you are a forgiving person, uh, Christian or person, you will be like God. You will be like Christ. Let's close with this amazing passage. Go to Colossians um, chapter 3. And here's the outworking of it. By the way, just a reminder, we can't do any of these acts of love on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our flesh. Uh, we can't do it by just sheer willpower. We need God's help. We need the indwelling Holy Spirit. Sometimes we need accountability. We need fresh reminders from the Word of God because the Word of God is living and active, isn't it? And it works on our heart and our soul. And we'll go to Colossians chapter 3. And here Paul talks about how Christians should behave and interact with other Christians in the church, in the home, wherever you interact with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in verse 12, Colossians 3, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion. See, that's the same thing the king had. His gut hurt towards other people. A heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. You know what that means? Put up with one another. Tolerate one another. And forgiving each other, it's present tense, continually forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you for those horrific sins that put Him on the cross, so also should you forgive your fellow Christian for the smaller, piddly sins that they did against you. What a great reminder. And verse 14, how appropriate. And beyond all these things, put on love. It's the greatest priority. It's the number one calling which is the perfect bond of unity. The heir is human to forgive divine. Thank God for forgiveness in our blessed risen Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for this day and we thank You for the glorious Gospel that uh, really is 
manifest in this spectrum of love that Paul reminds us of. Lord Jesus, thank you for willingly absorbing the wrath of the Father for all of our sins. Father, I ask for forgiveness uh, for sin against you of all kinds, of uh, intentional sin and deliberate sin and of even unintentional sins and uh, areas where we are self-deceived and we don't even think we're sinning, but we are. God, we need your help. We need your illumination and enlightening and conviction and the help of other people and the the power of your living word to spark and to feed our soul. God, this week, uh, help us to live on a higher plane of love, starting with being a forgiving person, being like Christ. Thank you so much for the forgiveness we have in his death and resurrection and uh, that you use that and enable us to be adopted into your family as your blessed children. We love you. We pray you'd go before us now in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.